Good, good, good. If you're with us, we're glad. If you have your Bible, take it out. You can open it to Matthew chapter 11. That's where we'll be or turn it on, whichever the case may be, if you have an electronic one. Let me read this. Jesus said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you've hidden these things from the wise and the intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son. And anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then the more familiar part. Come to me then. All you that are weary and are carrying heavy burdens. And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Uh, I want to say what you already know, that if there ever was one, this is a word for today. Um, come to me, all you that are weary and carrying heavy burdens. Man, is that good to hear today or what? Um, I don't know about you. Maybe this sermon is 100% for me. But this sermon is for anyone who's feeling weary and heavy burdened. And so I'll just say... If that's not the place that you're in today, I'm happy for you. If you're in one of those mountaintop places where you're fist pumping the air and celebrating victories, man, I'm happy for you. And I just want to say to you, then put this sermon in your pocket because that day's going to come. The other day, that is. Um, and so for me, this is that day. Uh, weary and heavy burdened. Um, and I don't have to go through, you know, this is not, this is not about me. This is not autobiographical, but you know, uh, there's burdens. It's heavy right now. Uh, we're glad that, uh, it feels like in many ways, this pandemic phase is, uh, brightening here and there. Um, and yet even with the pandemic, you know, the, the dust and the ash is, uh, left a trail, and left a mark. So what I want to do this morning is just walk through this passage because there is some gold for us in this passage that I think um, speaks to our current situation. And this is, I mean, in, in both the macro and the micro. I mean, right, like, you know, in the in the macro sense, I mentioned the the public health crisis that we've been in and come through. Um, there's the economic fallout from that. Um, there's even still the political stuff going on in our culture. There's the crisis about surrounding issues of social justice and systemic racism and all that. Um, but then coming closer to home, there are many people, many of us who are struggling with career and job and family and children and um, just keeping up with normal. I was with a family just yesterday, who were, uh, we had a memorial for a 
52-year-old mother, daughter, grandmother, sister who passed away after a battle with cancer. I mean, you know, we're weary. There's heavy burdens. Um, and so I want to just go through this passage. And let me just say before we do the specifics, I had a seminary professor. This is many years ago. But um, he talked about a, a principle that really resonated with me that he said that as you go through your life, you're going to realize that somewhere, somehow along the way, you are going to gravitate towards certain themes that will um, uh, define your life, your thinking, the way that you see the world. Just He called them life themes. And... Um, I don't know if you've ever heard that before, but I've certainly found, I mean, even when he said it, I was in my 20s and it resonated with me. And it's certainly true to this day now, many, you know, three decades later. Um, and I, I, I think I could probably enjoy having a conversation about what I consider to be the themes of my life at this point. But I raised that uh, idea uh, because if you're looking for a life theme, <laughs> I want to recommend this one right here, what's in this passage. Come to me. Come to me. Uh, you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I'll give you rest. I mean, that's a great theme. That would be, I think, a fantastic result for your soul if that became a theme, a centering core theme of your life. Jesus begins this little sermonette with a prayer. I thank you, Father. You know, we talked about it before. That's Jesus' favorite way of describing God. Throughout the scriptures um, and even in the dialogue in Jesus' day, there were many ways of thinking about and talking about God. Judge, warrior, all kinds of metaphors. But Jesus' favorite metaphor was to speak of God as a father. And it's my prayer and my hope that we never forget that. And that we always, always hold on to that. Um, you're going to encounter people who think of God in those other terms. Talk about God in those other terms. Warrior, king, um, judge, all those kinds of things. And that's all in there. Um, but I want to encourage you, speaking of life themes, let's migrate toward where Jesus centered himself, and that is, with God as Father. He said, I want to thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. Notice once again how Jesus is grounded in God, not only as Lord of heaven, and that's out there, and sometimes, you know, we tend to migrate in that direction, but Jesus is always going to remind us that he is the Father of earth. We have it in the Lord's Prayer, right? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So many times our faith becomes kind of future focused and out there focused and ethereal, you know, uh, but Jesus is constantly reminding us that God is the Father of earth. I don't know if you realize this or not, but back in the 60s, uh, during the civil rights movement, there was a real conversation. There was a real debate. You know, Billy Graham is on record um, saying that 
that uh, racism is just going to be a part of the way the world is until Jesus comes. And Martin Luther King Jr., of course, had a very different vision. And he spoke it in one of the more, more familiar. He said, there, the day is going to come when little black children and little white children are going to play together. See, that's a totally different vision of the role of faith in the world. And, and I give you that not to point fingers at anyone, but just to say that this, this idea is deeply woven, and I'm speaking in evangelical circles, this idea is deeply woven in evangelical circles where everything, all the promises of God, the, we push it off into the future. You know, and, and so, but Jesus, all the, he's constantly, the kingdom is here. It's among you. It's within you. The kingdom is for this world for now. So Jesus begins this prayer. Father, Lord of heaven and earth. And he, he says, I thank you that you've revealed these things. Now, it's worth asking, right, because it's not specified in this passage. What does Jesus mean by these things? Well, we don't know for sure, but it's a pretty good guess to expect that what Jesus is referring to here is what he's talking about all the time, which is the kingdom of God. The gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, tell us over and over and over again that Jesus went about gospeling the gospel of the kingdom of God, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God, that God's kingdom, God's rule, God's reign is breaking into the world right here and right now. It's unfolding, it's blooming, it's in you, it's among you, all that. So these things, it's a safe bet to assume that what Jesus means in this brief little prayer as he begins this sermonette is that what Jesus is referring to is how it is that he has been characterizing the kingdom of God, the rule, the reign of God in the world. The world as a healed and transformed world where everything looks like what it would look like if God were actually king in his world. See, in Jesus' day, if someone referred to the kingdom of Caesar, everyone would immediately know what you're talking about. Well, the kingdom of Caesar, that's what this is. That's where we're living. That's the reality that we're living in. We pay taxes to Rome. They're taking our resources. They're taking the fish out of our lakes. They're taking the proceeds of our, of our fields that's the kingdom of Caesar. Caesar is in charge right now. That's the world we live in. And so when Jesus comes around and says the kingdom of God, he is evoking an alternative reality in the world, in the society that we live in. And so the kingdom of God is a way of describing a transformed world that is not the kingdom of Caesar, but is instead the kingdom of God. Specifically, What's the content that Jesus filled in to that frame? Well, he talks about it all, all the time. Where captives go free, where debts are forgiven, where everyone is welcome with open arms. There are no stigmatized. There are no shunned. There are no marginalized among us. There is no us versus them because there's only us. There's just them. There, are, there, there, are, there is no greater people ruling over the lesser people class because the very idea Jesus said the very idea of greatness is to descend to the bottom we just sang a series of songs uh, evoking and appropriately so with the weather today with the rain but evoking the idea of 
of the Spirit of God as water. And, and this is a metaphor that's throughout the Scriptures, right? Let justice roll like a river, um, uh, like the river of God flowing out from the throne, all that. You know, you think about, think about water. I mean, there's a lot we could say, but the thing I want to say right now is wherever water is, it goes to the bottom. Your Heavenly Father always goes to the bottom. So like, you know, I'm a human. I'm also an American. I'm also an American male. So I want to be on top, right? Like that's what my world taught, taught me, right? Like you, you are, your destiny is to be on top. That's your job. That's your role. That's your calling. That's your, you are gifted by God to go to the top. Well, guess what? Water goes to the bottom. Jesus' ambition was to go to the bottom. The ambition of Jesus, says, you know what, man? You're talking about the greatest. You're arguing over who's going to be the greatest, who's going to be on the left hand or the right side, uh, left, right hand and left hand of a future uh, uh, king on a throne. You, he says, you've missed the whole idea. We're going to the bottom, boys. That's where we're going. This revolution is a revolution of dissent. And the prophets spoke about it all the time. God is like water. He rushes to the bottom to bring healing to the lowest, to bring dignity to the despised, to heal those who are on the bottom. Jesus talked about it all the time. He talked about the kingdom of God as a feast, as a banquet, and guess who's there at this banquet? Right? The people who would never ordinarily be invited to the feast. It's the who to thought it's. It's not the who's who. It's the who to thought it's that are at this banquet that Jesus described as the kingdom of God, where the outcast becomes the guest of honor. That's the kingdom of God. Where the poor eats to the full of the finest and richest food. Where the stigmatized are at the head of the table. That's how Jesus filled in that frame of the kingdom of God. It's those kinds of images. And then, and then his life, his example. He didn't just talk it. He lived it. You know, I mean, we're reading from a passage in the Gospel of Matthew. What do we know about, like, the, the origin story of Matthew? Well, he was a tax collector. That means he was a, he's a Jewish, Jewish, you know, descent, biology, and working on behalf of the oppressive Roman government collecting taxes from the Jewish people, taking his cut, and then passing it on. He was seen as a traitor by, you know, mainstream Jewish society. Not just politically and socially, but like spiritually. Like you have, you have abandoned us. Matthew was a backslider in evangelical terms, right? You can't stand that term, neither can I, but I'm just saying. That's how he would have, you know, been seen. And Jesus approached him, come, come follow me. I mean, this is Breaking boundaries, breaking the rules, right? A good, any, 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 any aspiring, respectable rabbi would not invite a tax collector, turncoat, to be a part of his posse. It just doesn't happen. But Jesus is embodying, this is an example of Jesus embodying this stunning kingdom of God vision that he's teaching. His meal practice, Jesus having sharing meals with Notoriously sinful people, people of sinful reputation. Another example. So, so this, these things, you have revealed these things 
to infants. First, he says, you've revealed these things not to the wise and learned. That's the class of people assumed to be in the know, right? This subset of people that were all trained to expect is, you know, knowledgeable, wise and learned, right? That, that, that's, that's what I was talking about a minute ago. It's like ingrained in our culture. Like there's the wise and learned people, and they're the people who we should all inspire to be or to be like, you know? It's like, like when, you think about, when you think about how we're taught history, like what is American history? What is the story of American history? Well, chances are when you go through your memory of American history, you think about individuals, heroes. You think about, you name individuals, you know, there's, there's, George, there's Christopher Columbus, and there's George Washington, and there's Thomas Jefferson, and there's Alexander Hamilton, and there's, you know, it's like this, like this, it's like this, when you think about American history, chances are, in your memory, it is a parade of heroes, the wise and the learned, and then you get into, you know, I don't know, Patton, I don't, I'm trying to think of some more military people, but you know, it's like that, you know, it's like there's the political heroes, the military heroes, the economic heroes, you know, these are the people who have, who have orchestrated our history, right? Like that's what we're taught. That's how we've been trained. And here's Jesus saying, oh God, I'm so glad you, the, the wise and learned are clueless about all this. They don't know anything about what's real. The kingdom of God. They don't know anything about your heart for the world. They don't have it. They haven't seen it. Instead, you've revealed it to infants. <laughs> and like, I want to say, you know, because I, you know, you read these stories and I, I want to put my feet in the sandals of Jesus' disciples, right? Like, you know, you kind of read these stories and you think, and at this point I'm offended. <laughs> you know, it's like, wait a minute. This was all warm and fuzzy. <laughs> now I'm offended. <laughs> what are you calling me? <laughs> Infants. You've revealed, you have, you've revealed these things not to the wise and learned, but you've revealed these things to infants. Come on, let's just, let's just, let's not be offended by that though. Instead, let's just kind of sit with that infant you've revealed these things in other words what is he saying you've revealed these things to the vulnerable you've revealed these things to the weak you've revealed these things to the helpless i'm trying to think about characteristics of an infant right you've revealed these things to the needy well yeah yeah once you just kind of sit with that like are you calling me an infant i'm offended well mm. Maybe just don't be offended and just accept the reality. Yeah, I'm needy. I'm vulnerable. I'm helpless. Jesus says that's the group that gets it. That's the group who sees and understands Jesus' vision for the inbreaking kingdom of God. And so once you kind of sit with that, not only, I think, do we pass beyond being offended by it I think we yeah that's the posture that's the posture for I don't know receiving or entering whichever the vision of Jesus and then we talked about last week or recently 
then here's this word again. You've revealed these things. That's the Greek word um, apocalypto. You've revealed. You've pulled back the curtain. Revealed apocalypse. These things to infants. The son reveals the father to us. This is not something that you discover through scientific inquiry. No, it's a revelation. It's not something that you discover, you know, I grew up in Sunday school and, you know, all my life and, and we're trained in doctrinal statements and doctrinal confessions. You don't, you don't receive the kingdom in that way. You can, you, can, you can memorize statements of faith all you want. You can pray, wrote prayers all you want. You can sing songs all you want. But in the end, this thing is revealed. It's not memorized. It's not studied. It's not learned. You can't see it in a laboratory. It's, it's revealed. It's, it's, it's a revelation of the heart. It's not through philosophical argument. I love apologetics. You know, people who kind of give you a rational explanation for why one should choose to have faith in God. I love that. I think it's fascinating. But that's not where faith is. That's not where entering into the consciousness of Jesus is. It's an apocalypse. It's a revelation. I spent so many years trying to convince people, you know, trying to convince people for, you know, for why they should convert, pray the sinner's prayer, whatever. You can get pretty good at that if you try. But in the end, it's a revelation. It's an apocalypse. Um, and then Jesus says, this is all by your gracious will, man. Man. Again, back to life themes. If you just hold on to that, that God's will is always gracious. His will is always good. And I want to just connect that back to the apocalypse thing. Until what you've, until what you've seen is, is, is gracious, then what you've seen is not yet the Father. Did that, I don't know if that came out right. So Jesus invokes the idea of an apocalypse, and then he invokes the idea of the graciousness of God. And so hold those two things together. Until what it is that has been revealed to you is entirely gracious, then what you've seen up till now is not the Father. I don't care how much God talk has been woven into it. If what you've seen or what you've been presented is this amalgamation of goodness and wrath, goodness and retribution, goodness and punishment, that's not the Father. Jesus says what's been revealed is entirely gracious. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you've hidden these things from the wise and the intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. 
And he goes on, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to, where's that word again? Apocalypse. No one knows. This sounds like, for a minute, this sounds like a very exclusive circle, right? Like Jesus is saying something very exclusive. Nobody knows the Father but the Son. Nobody knows the Son but the Father. It's a very tight-knit you know, group, and you're all left out. And let me just say before we move on, because I'm going to make the argument that that's actually not what Jesus is intending to convey here. But before, we, before I make that argument, let me just say that don't, on some level, don't we have to acknowledge that that's true, right? Like, I mean, we're talking about God. We're talking about infinity. And so I think it is, on one level, it's fair to say that we don't really know God. Can we just be humble enough to acknowledge that? One of my favorite theologians, he said, one time he got finished preaching a sermon and somebody walked up to him after the sermon and said, you know what, you don't know what you're talking about. And he said, you're absolutely right. <laughs> I don't know what I'm talking I'm talking about God, after all. I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Even those true saints who we admire for their devotion to God in prayer and study and writing and all that, you know, even those saints will often gear down and say, you know, ultimately here, we're talking about infinity, there's mystery here, we don't know. Um, talking about Sunday school a minute ago, one of the first things we all learned is God is the omnis, omnipresent, omnipotent, omniscient, these are infinity kinds of concepts, you know? I mean, so, yeah, I mean, just to be fair, on some level, what Jesus is saying is, is true. He says, no one knows the Father except the Son. No one knows the Son except the Father. And yet, Jesus didn't stop talking there. No one knows the Father except the Son. No one knows the Son except the Father and those to whom the Son reveals him. Aren't you glad for that little word, and? What he's saying here is there is, there is this intimacy between the Father and the Son, and we're being invited into it. That's the idea. I don't know if you've seen, I wish I had a picture of it. There's a, one of the, um, the great icons of the early church. Um, it's, it's known that the, the name of the icon is the Trinity, and it shows three people sitting at a table as if, like, sharing a meal. And there's a neat story, and no one really knows if it's true or not, but there's a neat story that the first physical painting of this icon in the early church, um, in, the pl in, the, in the place in the painting, there was a blank spot where there was just the, I don't know if it was originally painted on canvas or what material it was, but, but there was a place like a, a small, almost square shape right in the center of the painting where there was no color, where there was no paint. So you had these three figures sitting around a table as if, you know, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, so depiction of the Trinity. And, and in the painting, there was this blank spot, and no one knew why that blank spot was there. Well, one of the stories that emerged, and I take it for true, so I'm going to say it's true, but nobody really knows, 
But um, the story that emerged is that when the original artist created that icon, I'm going to say it was a she, she attached a mirror right in that spot so that whoever looked at this depiction of the Trinity would see themselves. That this is, this is the work of the Father through Christ, bringing us into this intimacy between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this is exactly what Jesus is saying. No one knows the Father except the Son. No one knows the Son except the Father. And those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. And who is that? Well, the answer to that comes by keep reading. That's the, so much of this Bible thing, just keep thinking, reading. Right? Because somebody, somebody's going somebody's gonna to take that, just, just that much. No one knows the Father. No one knows, no, no one knows the Father except the Son. No one knows the Son except the Father and those whom the Son chooses to reveal. See, God chooses some and doesn't choose others. We're going to go back to our study of, um, with Rabbi Sachs uh, soon, and we'll, we'll get to that exclusionary thread, exclusionary toxic thread that's been woven into the thinking of many. But some people want to take just that much right there and say, see, see, God chooses some and doesn't choose others. And there's like this whole pernicious doctrine where certain people are chosen by God and certain people are damned by God. I don't know if you've ever heard that before. I hope you haven't. If you haven't, then good for you. But if you have heard it, I want you to know it's a pernicious uh, doctrine of demons. I'll just be frank with you. Because what, what does Jesus say? No one knows the Father except the Son. No one knows the Son except the Father. And those to whom the Son chooses to reveal. And then what does he say? So come to me, all of you. That's the next riff. Everything we've just talked about is the setup to the passage that's familiar. Who does the Son choose to reveal the Father to? All of you who are weary and heavy burdened. That's the whole idea. So just let's just, let's just keep this straight. Here it is from the message. I really miss Eugene Peterson. The world misses Eugene Peterson. This is his paraphrase of this passage. Matthew 11, verse 27. The Father has given me all these things to do and say. This is a unique father-son operation coming out of father and son intimacies and knowledge. No one knows the son the way the father does, nor the father the way the son does. But I'm not keeping it to myself. I'm ready to go over it line by line with anyone willing to listen. <laughs> Isn't that good? Oh, that's so good. And then he moves in to the part we're more familiar with. Come to me, all of you that are weary and are carrying heavy burdens, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I don't care who you are. I don't care where you've been. You are invited to come. The qualification to come is simply being needy, weary, heavy burdened. The only qualification for coming to Jesus is needing him, is wanting him. And I know when I say that, there's a, well, yeah, there's like a, 
But it's not that obvious. It's not that obvious. I remember one time I was in interaction uh, with this lady. I was, it's a long story, but I was actually in a bar. And uh, and was talking with this lady and um, just, I don't know how the, the whole thing came up. But just something about, you know, the, the goodness of God and and uh, her instant reaction was, oh, i got to get my life cleaned up. And I thought in that moment, well, no, no, that's not what I meant. I didn't mean to evoke shame. I didn't mean to evoke guilt. But that's what religion does, right? Religion says, if I'm going to come to God, i got to qualify, right? But look what Jesus is saying. He's saying the exact opposite of what religious, religion teaches. Come to me. What's the qualification? Oh, being weary. Oh, being burdened. Oh, being needy. Oh, being an infant. Being vulnerable. Being helpless. That's the qualification. It's like the qualification is being unqualified. That's the idea. So, come to me. The only qualification for coming to Jesus is the absence of qualification. And now, I love this. This is, again, we're talking about life themes. So, I'm nominating this as a life theme for you. Uh, and I'm now asking you to be aware that this is a permanent invitation, right? Like this is, this is a constant uh, serial invitation, right? So it's not like, oh yeah, I came to Jesus 30 years ago when I, you know, converted to Christianity. No, 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 no. That's, that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about, we're talking about a coming to Jesus that keeps on coming. This is an invitation by Jesus that keeps on inviting, right? So come to me again and again and again. Come without hesitation. Come. Those who are weary and heavy burdened. And as I said before, for sure, this, this, I'm just going to say, this fits me right now. Um, and I suspect I'm not alone in that. I suspect that in our, in our various stories, if we were sitting down swapping stories, I suspect the details would be different. But some of the core elements would be in common as well. We share common worries, common fears, hardships, difficulties, financial worries. How am I going to make ends meet? Health concerns. Am I going to be okay? Are my loved ones going to be okay? As I said a moment ago, we just had a memorial service. This woman was one year older than me. She had a battle with cancer. She was a, a mom, a grandmother, a daughter, a sister, an aunt. She fought valiantly. And in the end, cancer sucks. I mean, it just does. And so, yeah, am I, am I going to be okay? Are my family members going to be okay? We have relational conflict, right? Like, what is it about us? The 
sometimes the people we love the most, like, why does it seem to be the hardest to get along with the people I love the most? I mean, you know the drill. I mean, I could just, you know. Um, and then, as I've indicated a moment ago, there's these various forms of tyranny that kind of come at us from the culture, right? The culture around us that teaches us to do more, to get more, to have more, to be more, you know, um, be more beautiful, be more wealthy, be more perfect, you know, whatever. Man, doesn't that just make you tired? It just does. It just makes me tired. You know, the way that, the way the the marketing wizards sell stuff. You know, they put it on the billboard, they put it on the commercial, like you got to have that. If you don't have that, you're not actualized as a human being. Golly, just give me a break, man. It just makes me tired, you know. And then, and then there's the, the, the us versus them and the cultural dialogue that's out there. You know, all those, all those wicked Republicans Wicked liberals. I mean, it's just the whole thing. And then you got the church entering into the conversation, right? And so you're thinking, you know, you have these, you have these religious leaders that get out there and, and lead the war chant in the culture wars, you know, talking about how all those sinful people are destroying our country and God's mad at us because of all the people who are sinful. And so I'm here to help all the p- sinful people not be sinful so that God will heal our country. It's like, good grief. Who can carry that much weight, right? And then you think, you know, I'm listening to that. Well, I'm a Christian too. Do I, do I need to be like that? Listen, I mean, it just wears you out. The world, let me tell you something. Our world does not need an angry church. Our world does not need a warring church. Our world needs a Jesus community that's like Jesus. How about that? A Jesus community that is gracious and humble and embracing. And a a Jesus community that offers, and we're going to get to this word in a moment. What did Jesus say? Come to me and I'll give you rest. How far have we come in our modern culture where people think, oh, the Jesus people, that's where unrest is. That's where the anger is. That's where the shaming is. That's where the shunning is. I'm going to go as far away from that as I can so I can finally have some rest. Right? It's like evangelical opposite day in our culture. No, Jesus says, come to me and I'll give you rest. Ah. Six days of creation and what did God do on the seventh day? Rested. He rested. Somebody's calling me right now. We'll deal with it later. So he says, I'll give you rest. So I want you to know, when you come to Jesus, it's not an invitation to perform. It's not an invitation to a religious performance. It's not an invitation to compete. It's it's not a religious competition here. Um. It's not an invitation to choose sides in the culture conflict, right? So, uh, you see what I mean? He's saying, come to me and I'll give you 
rest. And the idea, remember, six days of creation, seventh day God rested. And you will recall that this is the, the genesis for where the whole idea of Sabbath came from. So an entire culture, Jesus, people, Jewish people, they embodied Sabbath rest as a people. And the idea of Sabbath is a time of replenishment. It's a time of healing. Even the, even the land gets a Sabbath. It gets to rest. The animals get a rest. The, family, the farm gets a rest. We all, everybody rests and for the purpose of replenishment. That's Sabbath. So Jesus says, come to me and I'll give you rest. Learn from me. That's not... Not learning like we might think, you know, like doctrinal statements. No, come and apprehend. Come and apprehend from me what life is. Learn from me. I'm gentle and I'm humble of heart. You know this. The world around us, it's harsh and unyielding and unforgiving. But Jesus is gentle. Um, the world around us not only is haughty and bossy, the world around us too often celebrates bossiness. You know, like like that's that's the in our culture at least the person who's celebrated is the haughty, bossy. You know that that person too often. It's, it's the strong who survive. You know, you got to be that persona. But Jesus, he says, man, I'm. I'm gentle, and I'm humble of heart. So, life themes. This is my nomination for you today for a life theme. This permanent and perpetual invitation from Jesus. What's the qualification to come? The qualification to come is being unqualified. What's the promise when we come? Rest. Replenishment. What's the personality of Jesus when we encounter him? Authentically so. He's humble. He's gentle. That's who Jesus is. Now, you know, we've said before, um, sometimes when especially again in our culture, when someone invokes Jesus, you got to ask which Jesus? Because there's people out there, I mean, that, you know, you're talking about KKK Jesus? Are you talking about culture warrior Jesus? Are you talking about, which Jesus are you talking about? Because Jesus, Jesus is humble and gentle. That's who he is. Sure, there are some misguided, misaligned Jesus franchises <laughs> that project this whole top-down, haughty, demanding, combat, combative, angry culture war with Jesus language woven all throughout. But Jesus himself, no, no, no. He's humble of heart, and he's gentle. He always has been, and he always is. And I know... I know that some people 
insist that their religion has to be thread through with who we're against. I realize that. And I realize that for some people, when you take away the againstness from their faith, they have nothing left. I realize that. But if you want to talk to me about life themes, personally, like I said before, until you've encountered and discovered this Jesus, you haven't discovered Jesus. No one knows the Father but the Son. No one knows the Son but the Father. And those whom the Son reveals him. And when you reveal, see, encounter that Father, the Father revealed by the Son, then and only then have you begun to see God. Is everybody tracking? Let's pray.